if you will, to Luke chapter 1. Because as we draw near to this Christmas season, I suppose no other place in Scripture receives so much attention as does the Gospel of Luke. The only account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the surrounding events is found in the Gospel of Luke. And for that reason, I would like us today to begin looking at the first one and a half chapters of this Gospel. Our plan now will be to take a section each week leading up to Christmas morning, which happens to be a Sunday morning. This is including everything every week from here on down through Christmas Eve and to Christmas morning. And today we're just going to get an introduction. And so I want to direct your attention to one long unbroken sentence, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things You have been taught. Now these verses, or this one long unbroken sentence, is known as the prologue to the Gospel of Luke. And they introduce to us three very important features that we're going to make note of today and that will help us in the coming weeks as we study this Gospel. We're introduced today, first of all, to the author of the Gospel, to the audience of of the gospel, and then to the aim of the gospel. The author, the audience, and the aim. Now let me just show you a little bit about the author here. And one of the things you might notice is, as you read that, you might say, but Joe, there is no author mentioned in this passage. It just says, it seemed good to me. Who is me? There's no mention of the author here. Just like the other Gospels, there's no mention of the author. All of the Gospels, all four Gospels, are anonymous. One thing that we can ascertain is that whoever wrote this book also wrote the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 begins, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the author of Luke is me and the author of Acts is I. But who's me and who is I? Luke is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. The title of this gospel, as it appears in our copies of the scriptures, is the gospel according to Luke. That title was affixed to this gospel very early on by the early church. If you look back into church history, you would find that the earliest list of the New Testament books, the, something called the Moratorian Canon, which was gathered in the second century, ascribes this gospel to Luke. In addition, a careful comparing between this gospel and the book of Acts narrows down the authorship of both Acts and Luke, uh, and the gospel of Luke to one person, this man named Luke. Luke 
is the author of this gospel as well as the author of the book of Acts. Which means that the Holy Spirit entrusted Luke to writing likely more of the New Testament than anyone else. If you say, well, I think Paul is the, the, the writer of, to the Hebrews, then maybe Paul wrote just a little bit more. But if not, if you admit that, that if you say, well, Paul didn't write it, then Paul wrote 2,032 verses, 125 verses less than Luke. About a third of our New Testament is made up of Luke's writing. But who was Luke? Well, let me tell you a couple of things about Luke. First of all, Luke was a Gentile Christian. His name actually was Lucas, Greek in origin. It, it seems apparent that Luke was Greek, or we could say he was Gentile. And that's clear from Luke's writing style, whereas the other Gospels would use Hebrew expressions. When it comes to reporting those same things, Luke doesn't use Hebrew expressions. He used the more familiar, uh, the more normal Greek expression. In fact, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul identifies Luke as being, quote, not of the circumcision. He's a Gentile who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you'll notice as you look at this gospel, and you'll see today, maybe a little bit, but more throughout the coming weeks, is that this author, Luke, seems to be obsessed with something. He's obsessed with the same thing that our three friends were obsessed with, and that is understanding the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke keeps pointing out over and over and over again that the gospel reaches Gentile people. Now, we don't know how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We might assume that it was through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We don't know. All that we know is that he was amazed with the fact that the gospel was made available to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. He's amazed by that. And he is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament. He's a Gentile Christian. Secondly, he was a medical missionary. A medical missionary. Listen to the book of Philemon, and I'm just kind of, because of time's sake, I'm just going to call these out to you. Philemon chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 23 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and then Paul says, my fellow workers. What we know is that Luke was a frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's called one of his fellow workers. He accompanied Paul on his, missionary, on his second and third missionary journeys. But he's not just a missionary, he's a medical missionary because the Bible says, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now we can imagine how often Luke must have served the Apostle Paul. He was frequently in need of medical care. I mean, Paul was always getting himself into trouble, wasn't he? He was getting beaten. He commonly suffered from physical illness and other ailments. He was repeatedly in harm's way. And so it worked out well, especially during his second and third missionary journeys, that he actually had a traveling uh, companion who happened to be a doctor. And you can imagine, this, this is not a doctor like some doctors you may think of. 
Sometimes you, you talk about a doctor who has a good bedside manner. You talk about a doctor who doesn't have a good, you know, the one who comes in and is just, he's got his chart and he's got his pen and he's just doing, he's just checking off. He's just moving along, doing his thing, doesn't care really. Luke is not like that. You see a tenderness and a compassion in Luke that could only be explained as somebody who felt, understood the hurts and pains of people. You've got a Gentile Christian a medical missionary, and you've got a faithful friend. That's who Luke is. The only other place that Luke is mentioned in the Bible, I've already given you Philemon and Colossians. The only other place other than that is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul is at the end of his life. He's in Roman imprisonment. This is going to be the end. And guess what Paul says about Luke? 2 Timothy 4, 11, Luke alone is with me. There was a man, Demas, who had been a, a, a partner, a, a companion of Paul, but he departed having loved this present world. Luke was no Demas. Luke alone is with me. Here is the Apostle Paul in a dank Roman prison at the end of his life, and who is with him? It's the beloved physician, Luke. You see, persecution against Christians was ratcheting up. Paul was in prison. Some of his own co-workers, like I said, Demas, had abandoned him. But there is one who is still there, rarely mentioned in the Bible, but there he is. He's always with the apostle. In Acts 27, in a terrible storm, which led to shipwreck, guess who's there? Luke. Luke was there. Luke was there during Paul's earlier imprisonment. He was there for the hundreds, if not thousands of miles of walking during Paul's second and third missionary journeys. Brothers and sisters, Luke is one of the unsung heroes of the faith. He is a faithful friend. When everyone else is leaving, boy, you got Luke right there. A Gentile Christian, a medical missionary, a faithful friend. But he's also a careful historian. And that's the meat of what I want to get to today. About one-third of the New Testament is penned by Luke. Luke, the gospel is about what Jesus did and taught before his ascension. Acts is what Jesus taught after his ascension. John Stott pointed out, he said, notice the care with which he records these events. He said, these things have been accomplished, witnessed, transmitted, investigated, and now written down. These are the very things which are the foundation of the, care of the Christian faith. Luke is saying this, there were, met, there were many accounts of the life and works, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many that were, were being distributed, that were, that, were, that were going around in those days. But he said, it seemed good for me to bring all of those together and, and put them in one place. He says, I have undertaken, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. He goes back to the very beginning and puts together the narrative, the narrative of the story which changed the world. And he brings it all together quite uniquely. He was not some gullible man who just wrote heresy. No, he carefully compiled the information. You see, the Christian faith is not something that's just a few people. He said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. That's what many have done. But it seemed good to me, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he said, it seemed good to me to sit down and write these things down. What things? The things, he says, which have been accomplished among us. 
This story that Luke is writing about, the story that changed the world, is a story about what has been, and here's the word, accomplished. It's literally the word fulfilled. This is something that really grabs Luke's attention. He said, I'm writing to you about something that, not something I did, but something that has been fulfilled, something that has been accomplished among us in time and space. He mentions this again in the words of Jesus in Luke 24. Jesus, after he was raised, said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and here's the word, must be fulfilled. Luke is amazed. He's drawing our attention to what has been accomplished, what has been fulfilled in our midst. Everyone else has compiled to to give us a narrative. Uh, I found it right to bring to you this story of that which has been accomplished among us. Us. I've followed it, he says in verse 3. I've followed these things closely for some time past. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to deliver to you, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He went back to the beginning, which is why this story, actually the story which changed the world here, begins with the birth of one named John the Baptist. He said, I'm going to deliver to you that which the eyewitnesses. That word, actually eyewitnesses, is the word uh, from which we get our word autopsy. It's like the, these people, he said, I'm going to tell you what these people who are eyewitnesses, who got down into the details, they, 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 they separated everything, they dissected everything and gave a report to me of exactly what has been accomplished among you. In other words, Luke went out and carefully brought all the stories together. He personally interviewed the apostles. They were the ministers of the word. It's likely that Luke even... Uh, Uh, interviewed Mary herself, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did these interviews. He was an investigative reporter, so to speak. I carefully followed closely for some time. And therefore, he carefully arranged these things, not necessarily chronological. He said, I want to write to you uh, an orderly account, not necessarily chronologically, but thematically. Luke carefully moves through the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ and reports on these things. You'll notice, I'm telling you that that he was a careful historian. When Luke reports things throughout this gospel, you'll notice that he always brings in what we'll call a, a historical anchor. For instance, look at verse 5. Historical anchor. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. See that historical anchor. Chapter 2. Look over at chapter 2. Verse 1. Historical anchor. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman 
world. And then Luke puts this historical anchor in. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Why did he do that? He didn't just say that Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. He said that they traveled there because of a census instituted by Caesar Augustus and that this particular census occurred while a man named Quirinius was governor of Syria. Listen, 100 years ago or more, critics had a field day with this because there was no evidence in history at all to suggest that Caesar ever issued a decree and there was nothing to suggest that Quirinius was ever the governor of Syria at the time when Luke said. Now, until a series of discoveries were made by a man named Sir William Ramsey, He was a Scottish archaeologist who dug up first century documents showing that the Roman Empire conducted a regular tax-paying census every 14 years and that this system originated in the days of Caesar Augustus. Another document was found in Egypt, an edict um, of, of Maximus written on paper describing the procedure used in such a census, directing taxpayers to return to their ancestral towns in order to register. Another inscription discovered by Ramsey in Antioch showed with brief interruptions, a man named Quirinius functioned as a military governor in Syria from A.D. 12 to A.D. 16. In Luke chapter 3, you see how Luke meticulously nails down his historical references. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and he mentions all of these things. And it used to be that skeptics would make a field day of that because there was never any evidence of even the existence of a man named Pontius Pilate. Until along comes a Scottish archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey and... He uncovers, he excavates in Caesarea, uncovers a stone with the inscription written on it, Pontius Pilate. Now what you need to know is that Sir William Ramsey actually went to the Middle East in order to disprove Luke's historical account. But when he arrived, he began to find everywhere that even Luke's tiniest details were accurate. It is known that nearly every other historian in the ancient world sometimes misreported facts in order to suit their own purposes. But Luke has been found historically proven, historically accurate on every point. Peter says we did not follow cleverly devised myths. John says that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see something about this author. This author, a Gentile Christian, a medical missionary, a faithful friend, and a careful historian. But let me hurry on to talk to you a little bit about the audience. You look back in Luke chapter 1 and you see, obviously, that he's Writing, there's this man named Theophilus. Just means God lover. Lover of God. Now many have tried to figure out who he was. Some have supposed that it's not really a a real name at all. It's just a reference to all who love God. And that sounds right until you see that he references most excellent Theophilus. And those terms, that term most excellent is only ever used to refer to a Roman official. So it seems best to understand that Theophilus could be an actual person 
who was likely a Roman official, and Luke was writing with this man in mind, maybe even commissioned by him, supported by him, so that he could provide an orderly account of the things which he had been taught. See that that verse 4? That you may have certainty concerning the things that have you have been taught. Apparently, this man Theophilus, who must have been a Roman official, had was taught at least something about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this account, for this reason, that this account is provided for him. He's writing to Theophilus. But I also want you to remember, he's writing to you. It's like that commercial, right? I'm talking to you. You talking to me? I'm talking to you. Luke is talking to you. The Bible was not written to us, but the Bible is written for us. The Holy Spirit worked through Luke to bring us this orderly account of the life and ministry, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it's very important that we also understand something about the aim of this gospel. It's written to Theophilus, but it's written for you, and so you need to understand why it's written. What's the purpose? You see what he says? That you may have certainty. He speaks of providing an orderly account. Now that doesn't, as I said, doesn't necessarily speak of providing chronological order, but rather he's emphasizing, he's emphasizing the logic behind this story, as I said, the story that changed the world. He's emphasizing the logic, the reasons for following Christ. Why is it logical to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? He's providing for us, friends, the basis for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Not only to provide an orderly account, but to provide, he says, certainty. Luke is not an innovator. He's a reporter. He's not the editor. He's the paper boy. He's, He's compiling and reporting this story, and he wanted Theophilus to have the truth so that Theophilus could have a full knowledge of the things that had that he had been taught. Luke wanted him to understand the truth. He was writing in order to provide a full-orbed account of the life and ministry, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that happened according to it. He was writing to explain, for instance, the presence of the local church. Maybe Theophilus did not. Where did the church come from? He's writing to explain how it was that men were going to, to, to death for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was writing so that Theophilus would have a solid foundation in which to build his own faith. Indeed, Luke set about writing 52 chapters of history, the book of Luke and Acts. It's a labor of love when you think about it. You try to write a letter, a page, and you're like, man, that's really hard to write this whole page. Luke's writing 52 chapters. What a labor of love under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit which required his fervent dedication and diligent research. You see, even though he was led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit used his diligent research because he longed for Theophilus to have a full understanding, to be assured of the veracity of these things. That's why he wrote. That's why he wrote with such historical anchors. 
so that all these things, listen, all these things that he reports could actually be cross-checked and verified. One man said the gospel rests upon these divinely accredited certainties. It is not an imaginary system based upon weird and unproven legends, but a substantial and logical message resting upon an assured foundation of facts. The Gospels are true histories. Therefore, he says, the incidences they record actually occurred. You can cross-check, research these truths, and you will find the same thing that Sir William Ramsey found. He set out to prove the theological story, the theological theory of his day regarding the authorship of the New Testament. He was convinced uh, that, that, that the biblical scholarship in that day, I think of the school of Tübingen in, in Germany, biblical scholarship of that day said the New Testament had to be written years after most people were claiming that it was. And so he wanted to prove this. He wanted to prove it. So he was going to prove it with archaeology and demonstrate that the liberal biblical scholarship of the day was true. And he goes and starts digging it up. He wants to disprove it. And he finds at every corner that um, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, the one who kind of founded this Tübingen school, was actually wrong. Listen to Ramsey's own words. He said, I may fairly claim to have entered on this investigation without any prejudice in favor of the conclusion which I shall now attempt to justify to the reader. On the contrary, I began with a mind unfavorable to it for the ingenuity and apparent completeness of the Tubigan theory had at one time quite convinced me. But, someone else picks up the story and says this, after years of investigating every single detail of retracing places mentioned in Acts and looking at all the authorities, Ramsey came to the exact opposite conclusion. He concluded that Luke was not only a great historian, but that, quote, he was of the among the historians of first rank. And it was that truth that convinced Ramsey to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what led to his own faith. You see, the story that changed the world, which Luke is reporting to us, is a story that changed us. And that's some of the testimonies we've heard this morning, isn't it? There is a written, verifiable account of that which God accomplished in human history through the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things were written about. And everything that was written had to be accomplished. And this, the Gospel of Luke, is a trustworthy record of what God accomplished. Do you believe that? Have you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, the gospel answers the question. This gospel answers the question. Why was Jesus born? It shows us not only how He lived, but how and why He died. It demonstrates to us the reality that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day. Now, I want you to understand something. Unless the Holy Spirit works in your heart, you will never confess these things. Amen? 
You will never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. But you must also understand that it is the chief concern of the Holy Spirit to set before your heart and mind trustworthy, the, the, the trustworthy word by which you can be born from above. If you'll set yourself before the gospel testimony, specifically, if you will set yourself before this gospel testimony and read it while you are crying out to God to open your heart and open your mind, He will most certainly answer you. And you too will become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the story that changed the world because it's the story that changes your life. So now, over the coming weeks, this is all just a primer, over the coming weeks we're going to endeavor to look into the beginnings of this account so that we can be amazed in unison. I want to invite you over these coming weeks to join me in this grand display of the glory of God as the Son of God Himself enters time and space as He intervenes in human history to be the cause of our great joy and wondrous peace for the worn and the weary because because Luke is sitting at our bedside, as it were, as a good doctor. He's got a good bedside manner and he sees the worn and he sees the weary. He sees the sinner, the poor and the neglected, the wayward and the outcast, the hurt and the sick, the distressed and the destitute, the shamed and the guilty. Luke sits by the bedside of the prodigal son, the only one to report this to us, and tells the prodigal son about the father who is waiting and watching. He tells the prodigal son about the father who's not just waiting and watching, but he tells him about the father who sent his own son to rescue And so we have this inestimable privilege of beholding this story that changed the world. And it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's historical, verifiable truth that you can bank your life on. Amen? Let's pray together.